in three, two, one. Between consumer demands for more personalized and greater data privacy and competitive pressures to provide better omnichannel customer experiences, brands are faced with a dilemma. Build a foundation for the future of customer relationships or lose relevancy in a crowded marketplace. Doing this, however, is not without its challenges. While many enterprises are engaged in digital transformations in order to modernize and anticipate future changes, these efforts are often fraught with challenges and many fail to deliver the results promised. To help us understand how to create a world-class customer experience is best-selling author, speaker, and consultant, Greg Kilstrom. Well, hi, Greg. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to talking with you. Now, where are you speaking to us from today? So I'm just outside Washington, D.C. in Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, awesome. Well, really excited about this topic and your latest project, which we're going to be talking about. Your latest book is called House of the Customer, a blueprint for one-to-one customer-first employee-driven business transformation. And I love this stuff. So you're going to be talking to the choir here and really enjoyed lots of the concepts in your book. There's lots of meat and potatoes for people who want to level up their customer experience and have a blueprint on how do I do this? How do we make that work? Now, your book, House of the Customer, what is a house of the customer? And as far as we can look at, and why is it helpful to think of building the customer experience this way? Yeah, I mean, I approached this book because over the last few years, I've been working with a lot of some very large Fortune 50 organizations, some a little smaller organizations, and kept running into kind of the same challenges. And everybody's bought into the premise, customer experience is important. And more and more, it's being used as a competitive differentiator and a competitive advantage. So everybody's kind of bought into that premise, but actually putting it into practice and holistically putting it into practice, it's not just something that you do in one department. It's not something you do with one team or set of teams or things like that. And so what I wanted to do was break it down into a framework that First of all, easy to understand, but also granular enough so that an organization could say, okay, we're really strong already in some key areas of this, but there's seven different dimensions of this house of the customer. And by looking at these different dimensions, by measuring them, I include a maturity framework in the book as well. So you can index yourself against others. And by really trying to understand this, then you can say, okay, again, we're strong here, but we're weak here. Let's focus on some of these areas where we're weakest so we can then grow our overall maturity. And so I use the metaphor of a house. There's the, the, Good metaphor. the processes and systems. The foundation is the culture of the org. And there's other elements as well. Absolutely. Well, you've got the experience now. You migrated from your background was in marketing and you ran an agency. Tell us about that and how you got to where you thought this was an opportunity or a need in the marketplace and how you migrated to this particular subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. So I started back in the day. I was a web designer in the late 90s. You know, work when I got first going. job at a, at a yeah yeah I've been doing it for a little while. Taught myself HTML and came from more of a design background. And what I really I fell in love with this idea of this intersection of creative and marketing and technology because I just 
saw how powerful when you do brand well, when you do marketing well, and when you do technology well, how those things can really work together. And so I spent a little time at that startup. And then quickly after that started a marketing agency, and I ran that for about 14 years, grew it. And during that time, so from early 2000s to about six years ago now, we saw the rise of social media marketing, of really digital advertising in a more sophisticated way through programmatic. We saw the rise of personalization. So, you know, all of these kinds of things really started getting more mature. And one of the things that I I got to work with a lot of great brands and everybody from Coca-Cola to Toyota to to many others during that time. But what I started seeing and kind of what got frustrating to me was we would do some great work building digital experiences, digital marketing from a brand and marketing perspective. But we had no control over the experience that customers had. So in other words, we did a lot of marketing and advertising work saying, hey, this product and service is so great, but the customer experience for those, I didn't even have the words for that back in the day, the customer experience itself was not always phenomenal. And yet as an agency tasked with marketing, we couldn't control that. So I got more and more interested in the customer experience itself and what that entailed. And then that kind of led me a little bit deeper into, well, you know what, if the employees aren't happy and motivated and having a great experience, then the customers aren't going to have a great experience. And then the marketing falls flat and feels false. And so all of that kind of drove me deeper and deeper into an org. And now I feel like lately I've been working a lot more back in the marketing and that marketing technology world, but it's all informed by this deep understanding of it starts with employees and motivated employees driven by customer centricity. They translate that to a good customer experience, and then the marketing can feel genuine and really be effective. Mm, Good point. Well, and I think you've identified a good market. You know, I've been preaching brand experience for a couple of decades, and you think it would be getting better, right? With all this preaching going on. And the problem is, is I think companies in, I like the term you used, intersection framework for good words, they need systems. They've got to make the experience a process. If they want to scale it, it's kind of like when you go to McDonald's, the billion dollar question was, would you like fries with that? And that was easy to teach, right? And it created literally a billion dollars a year, just in additional sales and upsells. So it's important to have that kind of process. I've always looked at it as, and I'd be curious as your thoughts on this is, you know, we started, we made goods. We came out of the industrial age, evolved into the technological age. We started making stuff, we made goods. Then we needed services in order to provide those goods. Well, what age do we live today? Well, it's definitely the experience economy. And I believe that experience trumps service. If everything's equal, the best experience is going to win the day not the best service. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that experience is, it's about the entire journey, right? That's so, right. You know, part of that experience is pre-sales, but so much of the experience and so much of this experience should be after the sale. I mean, I think with so many companies now focusing more on customer lifetime value versus just net new customer acquisition, loyalty, retention, all of those things become more and more important. I talk about that quite a bit in the book as well as customer lifetime value really being one of those goals that every, you know, those North Star goals is really building a model around customer lifetime value. And again, I think all of this stuff probably sounds obvious to many listening, but when you work with large organizations that have a hard time really attributing the full value of a customer over their lifetime, like it, it's incredibly difficult to do really, really well. Some orgs have done it better than others, but I think they're all slowly starting and some more quickly than others, but I think they're all slowly starting to realize that, yeah, I mean, we always need new 
customers, but retaining because of the subscription economy and all of these other things that are so valuable and such a focus right now, retention is really trumping net new acquisition. In yeah. many cases. No, it makes sense. And lifetime value should be how we consider it, but not just let's get them in the door and then we forget about them. So what's the role of leadership in a customer first employee driven brand? Yeah. I mean, I think it really does start with leaders. I mean, leaders need to set the example and it's not just saying the words because I think a company can put a lot of things on their walls. They can put it on their intranet. They right. can put it in Slack or, or wherever they communicate <laughs> with their employees. But right. it really comes down to, I think, an undervalued aspect of this is think about how things get prioritized. Because that's really what the test of a relationship, and in this case, it would be a brand customer relationship. The test of any relationship is what happens when things are challenging or rough, or that goes in our personal lives as well as our professional lives. So right. if we think about that, when times are tough, when shareholders are complaining, when profits are, are tanking or whatever, what do you do? Do you only prioritize the business or do you prioritize things that also have the customer winning as well. And I think leaders need to keep that in mind. It doesn't mean that you stop caring about profits and sales and right. all that stuff. Obviously, for-profit companies have to make profits or else they can't serve customers. So of course, those things have to be important, but little things matter. And that goes for employees too. If leaders are always prioritizing financial gains or efficiency gains over employee experience or customer experience, it sends a message that we say that the customer is number one and we love our customers or whatever. Lip service. But yeah. But when it really comes down to it, do we? No, it, it depends yeah. on what we prioritize. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So most executives probably agree that happy customers are good for business. I think they're in agreement, but their priorities don't always reflect that. So why are so many failing to invest in their customers or the customer experience? I think their prioritization, you know, whoever they're reporting, I mean, even if you're a CEO, you're reporting to a board or shareholders or other stakeholders. So I think there does need to be an understanding, I would say category leaders in customer experience. Customer experience is part of their business strategy. And again, it doesn't mean they don't want to make money and, right. and be super profitable, but investments in customer experience have been proven to translate into profits and customer retention, which also more long-term gains and, and things like that. And so if you aren't there, not everybody listening to this is a category leader today, right? but if you're not there, it takes some experimentation to get there. I mean, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to make some wrong decisions. But as I always say, there's no such thing as failure if you're learning from experiments. And leaders need to be okay with that. And they need support from their boards, their shareholders, their stakeholders to make some, let's call it mistakes. But again, not really mistakes, but to have some learnings along the way so that they can get to that point where they're really competing on customer experience. That's really where the future's at. I agree. And you know, there's pioneers in the industry. I would say, for instance, Southwest Airlines, yeah. they went with one airplane. Lately, their customer experience sucked. Over the holidays, they had some bad, but time for updating, right? But when they right. came into the marketplace, they bought nothing but 737s. They had crews everywhere. So if there was a plane, there was a crew, not different classes of airplanes, but they went with ticketless travel, the paperless travel. So you could get your online ticket. You could go pick your own seat, create an experience. So it was operating very efficiently. And what I've learned is companies that have operational efficiencies in place creates the illusion of amazing service. 
In other words, if they're operationally efficient, they've got it. It's like Nordstrom's. Nordstrom's is kind of the, everybody knows Nordstrom's amazing when it comes to service. They're not operationally efficient. You go back in and you take some back, it costs them money to do it, but people will go back. I will, I'll go buy things there because I know if I have any problems with it whatsoever, it's going to get replaced, but no questions asked. They're famous for even taking a set of tires back and they don't even sell tires. Everybody's familiar with that story. So those were the pioneers in the industry. And then as it evolved, the experience, you've got Apple, you've got the Apple store, you've got Genius. Microsoft opened up its own stores and then for a while anyway, and then why did they go away? Right. And we all know what the experience is. And we've got friendly people, friendly faces. And what I believe is whoever has that highest service standard in business today just raised the bar for all of us, whether we like it or not. When I get off the phone with Apple ordering a new MacBook or a MacBook Pro, and then I'm ordering you know, something via FedEx, and then I'm ordering something on Amazon Prime, and then I go down to Starbucks, and then I walk into your store or deal with you online, I'm judging you by the same standard. So in my mind, whoever has that highest standard just nailed it for everybody. That's our new benchmark. Pull our heads up out of our own industry, right? Let's not look there. Let's look at what everyone else is doing and do that. Or at least it gives us a roadmap. Let them do the experimenting. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C, and B2B companies gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Greg Kilstrom. The goal, obviously, for leadership is to get the employees to actually care and do something. So in what ways are employees motivated to provide a great customer experience? How do we motivate them? Yeah, I mean, I think one way to get started with that is I always try to look for the win-win scenario as well. And so yeah. as you were saying, creating great efficiency can create great customer experience. And to me, that's a win-win, whether it's intentional or not right. from the beginning. But so from an employee perspective, when you think about if an employee's motivation is to create great customer experience, then their reward is great customer experience. So how do you do that, right? So one way to start is rethink everyone's role in the organization in terms of the customer. Instead of saying, okay, well, this person's writing code behind a desk and they're in some dark corner somewhere and writing zeros and ones, those people writing code, they're writing code for whether it's an internal customer even or an external customer. Everyone within the organization, I'm sure someone can think of some example that doesn't fit this, but most people within an organization organization should be able to have some kind of line of sight to the customer. And again, when that happens, when your job description revolves around customer experience and your role to it, then you have a purpose in your job, which is aligned with the company goals. Because if the company goals are great CX, then your role isn't just some tangential thing or that your role is directly aligned with strategic goals. And again, when the company succeeds in providing a better customer experience, you feel success and you feel a reward in that. So I think that's one way to start is even something as simple as rewriting job descriptions 
right. of everyone in terms of the customer. And again, it goes way beyond that, involving them in decisions and making them part of, of working groups or things like that. But I think a simple thing would really be everybody take a look at everyone that reports to you. Does their job involve the customer or not? Because it should. Right. Well, everybody touches it. Is there a certain type of person who gravitates this? We, you know, we've all had Myers-Briggs or the different personality styles, whether you're an analytical, a director, an amiable, or an expressive, right? And I've always heard, don't hire the analytical to be your customer service guy or girl because they have a need to be right and usually are. So they'll argue with you. They've got the facts and the figures. But is there a certain personality that's more suited or ideal for a customer-centric organization? Yeah, it's a great question. I think everybody wants to feel purpose in what they do. I think the role that they play in relation to the customer, absolutely. I don't think you want someone that's going to try to convince a customer that they're wrong right. on the phone <laughs> or live chat or, or whatever. I'm sure that's obvious, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like there's certain things, personality fits, but I would say that someone who can't see themselves as motivated by creating a better experience for customers, they may find themselves not a great fit at any category leading organization. And again, the role that they play may be vastly different and it may be more in keeping with their values and their motivations. But I don't think that an organization should hire someone that doesn't want to in some way serve purpose for a customer. You don't right. have to you don't have to feel like a frontline employee if that's not your personality. But if you're not motivated by creating a better customer experience, it just, I don't think there's a good place for you somewhere in, in one of these leading organizations. Yeah, there's a better fit for you somewhere. Should we be incentivizing it from a monetary point of view? Like, it's nice to have the altruistic perspective and purpose. In today's workforce, we have over five generations working and each one is motivated just a little bit differently, right? So the younger millennials, Gen X, and why they're very purposeful, where maybe the older baby boomers who are, you know, on their tail end of their career, they're looking for more of that economic thing. Is that useful or is it counterproductive? Yeah. I mean, so I've done, I've done a fair amount of work with motivation specifically, as you said, different people are motivated by different things. Right. So, you know, extrinsic motivation, like bonuses and salary increases and stuff. I mean, with any generation, there is a cap to how much increasing it actually motivates someone. We're all motivated by something intrinsic, whether we admit it or think of ourselves in that way or not. And so it doesn't always mean that everybody wants to volunteer for charity or things like that. It could be we're motivated by learning, we're motivated by doing something new or different, even if it's just new and different to us, or some of us want to mentor others, do things a little more altruistic. So I think it, it really comes down to a combination of things. Personally, I'm also extrinsically motivated in yeah. addition to intrinsic. So money talks to a lot of people to a degree. Again, after a certain point, it, it stops motivating them. But I think a combination of the two is important. And I think anyone of any generation appreciates purpose in what they do, some more than others. And I think Gen Z and millennials get a little more press about that, but they also are motivated by money too. They've yep. got- They got to pay the bill pay. as they get older and the kids come along. And it's right. kind of like a sales bonus. A lot of client companies have good base salaries and then there's bonuses or profit sharing based on the organization, or maybe it's a net promoter score. I remember United Airlines prior to the pandemic, if they finished in the top three, top three every single month on time in that every single employee got a check for a hundred dollars. The pilots did, the rampies, the baggage guys, the everybody, flight attendants, the agents, everyone got a check. Now the tax Taxes got taken off their payroll. They got their money deposited into the accounts, but they actually got a paper check for a hundred bucks. Either all got it or no one got it. Well, they always got it. 
And because if, you know, the pilots screwed up a little bit or the ramp, everybody was moving towards the common goal, but they all wanted their hundred bucks. And they made far more, of course, on salary. And so it didn't take much, but it created a good economic incentive for them. So you can be as creative as you want with that, but I agree with you. I think it should be part of any strategy. So how do brands then stay competitive in a world where both one-to-one -one personalized experiences and increased customer data privacy have to coexist. Yeah, yeah. So this is a very timely thing going right. on right now. We've got a lot of competing factors here. I mean, one, the expectations that are set by those category leaders and whether it's Apple or Amazon or, or others where there's some consistency. You know, when you walk into an Apple store, it's the same feeling that you get if you're on their website or things like that, even though technically the experience is very different. So we have this expectation of, okay, I can tweet I can go on live chat, I can pick up the phone, I can walk in a store and I shouldn't feel like it's a different company no matter what I choose to do, right? Right, whatever so channel. we've got that. In order to do that well though, these brands need to know a lot about us, right? They need to know our order history and our preferences and all of that. And so we also have this competing dynamic of consumer data privacy, which is we are all sick of our data being stolen and leaked. And I'm sure even today, there was probably some store of data was hacked into or something like that. It happens so frequently. It's kind of an eye roll at this point, but it definitely affects us all. And the EU kind of led the charge with GDPR, but yeah, California yeah. and some other states here in the States are quickly catching up to that as well. And so you have this paradox of, okay, I want a brand to know enough about me to be able to offer me tailored experiences, but I also want to only give my information to brands that I trust to do that with and not ones that are going to use it or someone else is going to hack into them or whatever. And so this is a constant challenge, but I think the task for brands is justify why you're asking for my information, prove the value that you're going to provide to me when I give you this information. And then inevitably people are willing to do that when right. they see the value, like Amazon knows where I live and they can send me stuff overnight. I'm cool with that because I get my stuff the next day. And so that to me, that's a fair trade-off. That's a fair exchange, yeah. but some companies that I've never heard of that's asking me weird information that doesn't right. seem relevant to their product or service, why in the world would I give that to them? I don't trust them. You know? Right. So it's a trust building. At the end of the day, the more I trust you, the more information I'll give you and make sure of it. So it does have its challenge for sure. So right now we've got, you know, on the horizon, artificial intelligence is starting to encroach on things and people worry about that a little bit. What am I really talking to? We have automation. So in a world of automation and AI, why is it important to treat customers and employees as individuals and how can we best achieve that? Yeah. One thing is what we were talking about, which is brands need to know their customers and understand them. And I think this involves getting voluntary information. We call it so first party information is right. data we collect about customers. Zero party is actually stuff that I willingly give. I fill out my name, Greg Kilstrom, in a form that's zero party. So we need all of that information from our customers in order to do that. But then brands need to be able to tie systems together. So at a very large organization, they've pretty much one of every platform you can imagine. They've probably got five or six CRMs sitting around. They've got right. Salesforce and Oracle and, and this and that. They've got a few websites and all of these 
these things. And so tying all of this stuff together so that the brand can confidently say that this Greg over here is the same as this Greg over there and show him the same thing, whether he's on a mobile app or email or website or in the store or whatever, like that's a huge challenge. But if they get it wrong, we run into the issue where I always use the example of like you call up the bank and you have a problem and you have to say your account number five different times to five different people and say the problem five different times. And finally you get to the right person. Why in the world do I have to do that? There's data integration issues. There's systems not talking to each other. As a customer, I could care less what the data integration problems are. I just have a bad experience. Think of this from a proactive marketing standpoint. If not a bad customer experience, there's at least lost opportunity to market to me when I'm the same me as the one, you know, on this other channel over here. The experience is good or bad. That's what they're going to talk about. Just a quick story. I was doing a gig over in the fall over in Europe and client ordered a bunch of books for the whole audience, that whole bit. We sent them over via a national transport logistics company. I won't mention any names, but their initials are UPS and they lost them. We had to resend, they lost a bunch of the books. And so we had to rush them out again. So we sent them via a different courier this time when they got there. And we're talking thousands of dollars of shipping costs. We've called, we have literally got over 50 attempts. And like, we're at the point where we're, hey, we're just gonna send a letter to the chairman of the board because I know they don't know about it. You know, I know they don't know about it, but just to get a refund, like they've lost things and just to get the refund. And we love Brown, but man, come on, do we have to go through this many channels in order to get resolution? And we're talking to a different person. They tell you they're going to call. They don't. That's how we're judging it. And look at, we're talking about it on a podcast and people are listening. And so I'm telling the story. That's our personal experience. I wish it was a different story to tell, right? Which brings me up to the next question of customer experience changes, evolve. What's high touch today becomes high task tomorrow. In other words, what's exceeding expectations today, tomorrow, we used to take our cards in for repair. They give us a donut and a coffee and we sit in the waiting room. Then they gave us loaner cards or they give us a ride to work. Those are expectations now. Those are table stakes. Can you give us any examples of what kind of service customers are excited about these days? And I realize it's probably different with each of the generations, but do you have any examples that come to mind of what they're looking for or what they'd consider valuable? Yeah, I mean, I think self-service in general is mm, definitely yeah. top of mind for any leading organization. So again, to your point, there are going to be certain high-touch industries and brands that I don't think Ritz-Carlton is going to all of a sudden put automated attendance at their concierge desk right. tomorrow. But so many brands are looking into self-service. I mean, I count myself among those people where I would much rather do a chat, like an automated chat kind of conversation versus pick up the phone. I will do anything to avoid picking up the phone and calling someone. And I'm not even a Gen Z or millennial. So others that are a lot more used to digital native and stuff like that. So I think anything self-service, and this is even translating into the B2B world, which is we're talking about high high value transaction type things where in the B2B world, you think multi-million dollar transactions take nine to 18 months sometimes to happen. You're not going to put in a credit card and buy a $3 million software platform, but there's a lot more of those processes and pieces of those processes that people are wanting self-service because there are expectations to your to what you were saying earlier. Even B2B customers that when they go home at night, they're B2C consumers, right? That's so, right. We all have that um, in common. They have these expectations. And so I think that to me, self-service is a huge focus and needs to be a huge focus. Yeah, that's a huge value bomb. That's good. Look for ways in how can I help myself? Can I solve my own problems? And because most of us want that immediate 
gratification of solving the problem. It's like, you know, you order something, you get it and you need the manual. I want to be able to go online and find it. If I got to wait and talk to customer service or return it. When I remember Zappos, which got eaten up by Amazon, you buy your shoes, you try your shoes, they send you out a box. And if it's the wrong size, you just simply went online. They sent out the news. They didn't even wait for the old one to come back. And it came back with a shipping label and you just go drop them all off five days later or whatever, the ones that you're not keeping. Well, who wouldn't? I mean, that's why they became Zappos, why Amazon bought them. Phenomenal service, right? Any brands come to mind who do it really well? Are there any brands that you would say are leading edge with all of this as far as you're concerned? If you were going to use them as examples in your book, who would you say is leading the pack? Yeah, I guess some of the brands that I like that I use and I'm loyal to Apple, certainly they do that well. I had an experience, I got a new laptop about a month ago or so, and I ordered the wrong thing and they worked with me to fix it before it was highly customized, but they worked with me and over chat. I was at the grocery store changing my (laughs) order for for my fairly expensive laptop and they did it. They worked it out, all of that stuff. I'm a huge Amex fan and I'm an early adopter of even their new products, which I would say not all are 100% baked, but they are so responsive and take feedback. I mean, I've given them feedback and they've incorporated it. So like that's Excellent. To me that so that also means something and others like Marriott. And I think the hospitality companies are right. They've had a little bit of a leg up just because I think they've been thinking about this stuff for decades where some other companies that have been a little less direct to consumer are a little later to the game. Some are catching up, of course, but I think those hospitality companies, certainly they're ones to look at as well. And you see some of the new services like Uber, you know, or Lyft, you can order your vehicle. Where am I going? It's going, it's seamless. Airbnb, Uber is now one of the largest transportation companies in the world. Airbnb is one of the largest hospitality companies in the world. Instacart and Grubhub, largest food services company in the world. And it's really all about that user experience, to your point. And companies who do it well, I always tell everybody, if you really want to have some good service, you mentioned them, check into a Fairmont or a Ritz-Carlton, stay for two days, hit the spa, hit the restaurants, and write down everything you notice. And it's usually what they add to the experience that makes it better. A story comes to mind in this. I was with one of our clients in Kohler, Wisconsin. So there's your hint right there. So the company was Kohler. And they've got the American Club, which is their hotel right next in Kohler. And I check in, and as I'm walking in, they go, hello, Mr. Vickers. And they use my name. We call that using the currency of prestige status, if you will. And they get me checked in, bags in, everything's good. And then at 10 o'clock at night, I'm calling for a wake-up call, and I get hey, this is Stephen in guest services. How can I help you, Mr. Vickers? And so, hey, I could get a wake-up call at 6 a.m.? Sure. Sir, would you like some coffee delivered to your room? We can have it there, and whenever you'd like it, it'll be there exactly on time. And I thought, all right, this will be good. And sir, I've got a number of papers you can choose from. And oh, by the way, our chef's featuring special crepes in the restaurant. I said, oh yeah, I'm already in there for the crepes, so I'm, I'm good to go. And great experience. Well, upon inquiry, they have a mapping system, just like some of the Marriott's do actually, where they know what time that stuff has to leave the kitchen in order to make it to the room exactly on time. So the software tells them when you got to leave and when you depart. So it's like, I mean, it's there. You can't, you can't miss out. Now, three days later, I'm staying at a hotel up in a different city and I call down and I go, hi, I'd like to set up a wake up call. All right. What time? 6 a.m. All right. Room 307, 6 a.m. That was the two experiences. Now we just demonstrated two experiences checking into two hotels. I try and tell people, I say, I just demonstrated both experiences. Which one would you rather choose? Which one would be up for your choice? And how hard is that? So it requires training. It requires investment. It's looking at those touch points, isn't it? 
and then leveling them up where we can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and to your point, the data, sometimes the data is a little bit harder to get than others, but in your example, they just asked you some questions. Right. That doesn't take system integration. Even the timing thing, that takes a little logistics or whatever, but it's like they asked you a set of questions which could be printed out on a piece of paper by a desk. Like that's a very low level of effort to give such a better customer experience. And then, yes, you could take it a step further and integrate timing and logistics and stuff too. But I think that also goes to show that you can start in an iterative way and build to something. If you're a smaller company even and don't have all of the backend systems and everything, you can start with just asking and listening, right? Right. It's a good point. Now, you've identified in your book agility and continuous improvement as keys to business success. So how often can we realistically reevaluate and readjust our business practices? How often should we be doing it? Yeah. One way of looking at it is that you should always be looking at things, but it's not realistic to change things constantly, right? So much as we would like to think that we like change for the better, humans are generally averse to large scale changes and especially people that have been trained and kind of been doing things for years and years. But I think the idea of continuous improvement means really, so I'm an agile certified coach. I've been through scrum master training and and all that stuff. That doesn't mean that I think everyone should be a scrum master and everyone should use agile and, and all of that. But what it does mean is to me, what agile does is it allows us to be scientific about the way we approach things. And again, it doesn't mean that we're reactive and we look at the numbers from yesterday and we're like, oh my God, we have to change everything because yesterday's numbers are down. It means we take a methodical approach and say, okay, you know what, we're going to measure something for couple weeks, a month, a quarter, whatever the case, not too long, but long enough to get statistically significant data. We're going to look at that. And then we are going to, we're not going to let it go a little bit longer. We're not going to change our mind about what success should have looked like. We're going to evaluate it based on a hypothesis that we created at the beginning and say, are we moving in the right direction or not? And if we're not, we do need to adjust. And those adjustments can be big or small, depending on how much change we're able to kind of incorporate. But continuous experimentation. I mean, you look at a company like Amazon, they're running 10,000 experiments concurrently on their website alone. And, you know, these organizations that are smart, they're constantly experimenting. And yet you go to Amazon and you're like, when does the last time they redesigned their homepage? I mean, one way of looking at it is like, it's been 12 years since it changed. The other is it's been 12 seconds probably. Right. Since it no, changed. there are changes. You just have to yeah. look for and know what you're looking for, but it's seamless because it makes sense. Right. When you talk about that and you use the keywords there, continuous improvement, those little small increments of improvement have exponential return on investment. I mean, we've learned that. Customers today are demanding a better experience and employees are demanding better working conditions. So it's CEO might feel stuck choosing between those competing needs. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, it's not fun to be a CEO some days, but that's the first thing. Second would be, I think when you treat your employees well, they're going to treat your customers well. And it doesn't mean you serve one at the expense of the other. When I wrote the book, House of the Customer, the foundation of that house is the culture of the organization, which is the employee experience. And I think if you don't start there, talking about my career earlier, you can build the greatest marketing campaign in the world. But if you have a 
crappy product, nobody's going to buy it again. You can build a great customer experience, but if the employees are miserable delivering on that customer experience, it's not sustainable. So it's got to start with employees, uh, again, with all of the pressures that are on CEOs and C-levels and stakeholders. That's a tough thing to wrap your head around is, hey, we may need to make some internal changes at the expense of short-term gains. Right. But the long-term gains, I mean, Southwest Airlines, recent snafus aside, that's an organization that from the very beginning, it's let's treat our employees well and they'll treat our customers well. The organizations we talk about when we talk about great customer experience, they do that. And they talk about customers, but they're serving their employees first. Right. Well, and how do companies who need to retool? So let's say you've got some legacy companies that have been around for a long time and they're worried about the threats coming on them, but they're big organizations. They're just big battleships, right? And they hit the brakes to change direction, takes them forever just to stop let alone turn around. And that's obviously where the keyword agility comes into it and being agile. What's their best course of action to start? So for our leaders that are listeners, what's a great place for them to start if I want to go down that road? And does it take a long time to convert that to a customer-centric organization? Yeah, I do think for a very large organization, it does take time, but it doesn't mean you're not making incremental progress along the way. As, as you were saying, whether it's what I call big A agile, which would be the following Scrum or Safe or, or things like that to the letter, or it's small a agile, which is just becoming more nimble and adaptive and continuously improving. You've got to start somewhere. I think where some organizations have failed, many actually have failed in these big digital transformation, very well-intentioned digital transformation, but thinking in terms of, okay, well, we're going to make this huge change that's going to be live in 24 months from now. Until then, everything's going to be the same. And we're making some really big guesses and some hunches on what we think CX and internal stuff should be like in 24 months. Well, those orgs that were starting that at the beginning of 2020, well, they were in for a pretty rude awakening as COVID hit. And all of a sudden, what did their 24-month plan look like right. in, in April of that year or something like that? And so the trick is, it's not that you don't have a goal for two years, five years, whatever from now. You have to be cognizant of the fact that things are going to change. The way you get to those goals, the goals don't change, but the way you get there is going to change. And that needs to be built into the process so that you don't go so far down a path and have to retool or God forbid, start from scratch again, because you took the wrong path. Right. Do you recommend, just like we would do a business plan or a growth strategy, we need to have an experience strategy as well, or whatever that customer experience is going to be? Because you're having one, whether you like it or not, it's whether you designed it or not, do it in a purposeful way, right? Yeah. And I think the successful companies, that is not so dissimilar from their business goal. I think right. I think treating it as a separate, and you know, I think just like the digital transformation, those big, long projects with kind of roads to nowhere, sometimes that was a failing on a lot of those projects. I think keeping it separate from business goals is also a, a recipe for disaster because yeah. at some point someone's going to say, well, prioritize making money or prioritize the customer and guess what's going to win? You know, right, right. unfortunately, if they are aligned though, then there's a lot greater chance for success. You used the keyword holistic and it, it has to be aligned and synergistic. So it has to be supporting that role. And it's just one engine or one cylinder of the total engine, right? You know, I have a saying price is never the issue unless it is the issue. And when it's the issue, it's the only issue. And you and I know that customers will sometimes be willing to pay more for the same product if it's delivered with a higher quality of service. So in your opinion, what's the secret ingredient that would make a customer choose a higher option over the lower price, say from a competitor? Yeah, I do think it's either the experience they've already 
received or the anticipated experience. And this is where marketing, advertising, and word of mouth is still very, very, even though we're talking a lot about CX, like marketing is still vital to spreading the message about what the experience could be like. But it is, it's experience. If you're in a real like commodity type of org or product or something, there's only so far that experience is going to go with one of those types of products. But in most things to what we were saying earlier, we're seeing so much being changed to the subscription models. And that's a way for brands to create an experience that previously no one would have thought they could have a customer experience for some commoditized product. So yeah, I do think that's the main reason why people will pay more. There is a little bit of brand lit, you know, if it's a reputable brand, I think a lot of that is going away in favor of experience. And I think a lot of those big you know, those brands that we all look to, they're building more and more of their value on experience and less about logo recognition right. and stuff like that. Right. That gets you to the table. It's like you say, table stakes, but it's not how people will choose. You know, I believe personally, and I have this argument with professors in business school, that the more it looks like a commodity, the more you can differentiate it. And I'll give you an example. I fly to different cities, obviously, as you do, you know, as we're speaking around the country. And I arrive in Toronto, the airport in Toronto, I got to go downtown. Well, a cab is 55 bucks. There's a sign on the window, the municipality governs it. So taxi cabs cannot, it's all regulated. They can't have a better price or cheaper, more expensive price. You can get a town car service and you're going to pay a little more, but taxis, it's all the same. So we're talking commodity. I get into this cab. First thing he says to me, he says, sir, can I offer you a Starbucks? I got regular decaf. And I look up on the front seat and he's got an egg crate Velcro to the front seat that some supermarkets probably missing. And inside the egg crate are two thermoses that some hotels missing. He even had the stickers and he even had the cups. And I'm going, yeah, I'll have a Starbucks. Thanks very much. Sir, I don't know if you had breakfast yet or not. And he holds up a basket with some muffins, some fruits. And I'll say, well, I'll take a muffin, a piece of fruit. Thanks. Sir, I got three morning papers, USA Today, Globe and Mail, Wall Street Journal. I'm like, I'll take a USA Today. I haven't seen one of those in a while. So the question is, is this guy getting a tip? Well, the answer is yes. Now he leaves me alone. I'm having the best taxi ride ever. And I arrived downtown. It's 55 bucks. And he said, sir, were you happy with the service you received? And I said, best cab ride I've ever had. I don't even get town car service as good. And if a client sends that and he goes, sir, when I go to the airport, I got lined up for two to three hours for a fare. Sometimes it's an hour away. Sometimes it's five minutes away. It's sort of a toss of the coin, whether I make money that day or not. However, if you'll phone me, fax me, email me, tell me when you're coming, we'll respond the same way, come to the bottom of the escalator with a sign with your name on it, and offer you this service each and every time you come to our great city. Now, wouldn't you use that guy? When was the last time you talked about a cab ride, a commodity service, right? So even if you have a bag of rice and a bag of rice and a bag of rice, you can differentiate, and it's what you add to the experience that they'll talk about. You go to the dentist, another example, you go to the dentist and get your teeth filled, and you come back and you tell everybody on your team, hey guys, I just got my teeth filled, and we're all like, wow, aren't you lucky, Greg? Like, good for you. You're not even having this conversation. But if the dentist phones you at eight o'clock at night and says, hey, you know what? You had a root canal today, really tough procedure. Sometimes the pain's a little much. How are you doing? How are you making out? I can always have someone from my office drop by some more pain meds if you need them. And you know, you're know, you going, holy cow, the dentist called me at home at eight o'clock at night after work. That's what you'll talk about. Because again, what's high touch today, what's high experience today becomes high task tomorrow. Everybody will catch on once it does. So the bar is always being raised. So it does buy a little bit of time, doesn't it? But then you've got to constantly reevaluate, keep looking, and then keep leveling up where possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, that's an amazing taxi story. That's that cool? definitely better than my most recent taxi experience. But <laughs> but yeah, definitely. And I think that kind of speaks to it goes kind of both ways, right? So yeah. the commodities are needing to up their game and those already at the top of their game are needing to continually re-up and learn as well. So yeah, it's never a dull moment, right? Yeah. Last question for you. Where do you see it going? Where's the future with AI coming on? I mean, it's helpful. The chat bots, there's some new technology coming down the line, but we still need the human interaction. I told everybody prior to the pandemic, in 10 years from now, here's what it's going to look like, I think, according to me, my opinion. But I think the pandemic accelerated all that. I think we're there. People have the expectations. Where do you see it going in the next two to three years? Yeah, definitely more and more automation, definitely. And the self-service component, that's part of that. But it's not just about self-service. It's also about meeting customers where they are and right. knowing where they are and knowing what they want and understanding, you know, everything from their propensity to buy and re-up to just what related products and services that they want. So there's everything from journey orchestration. So this idea of we as brands, we think we know what a customer should want, but it really comes down to a better understanding and tailoring a customer, not just a specific experience, but an entire suite of experiences for those customers over time and AI and people working together. Yeah, I believe that AI is an augmentation of people, not it's a replacement. It's a tool. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're still, every day there's 20 articles about chat GPT and, and all this stuff. It's like, we're still finding our way there. There's a lot of regulation that's going to be happening and all that stuff. So there's so much TBD in that world. But what I feel confident about is AI is not going anywhere. It's just a matter of its relationship to us. And brands are what looks like high touch is going to change from being human high touch to automated high touch in many instances. But in some, I think it's going to stay the same because yeah. we still we still like that we buy from certain brands because they are human and high touch. We like the connection. It's things, about the connection. automation behind it. Yeah. Hey, this has been absolutely interesting, Greg. Thank you so much. So whether it's marketing technology, digital transformation, or customer experience, Greg Kilstrom brings decades of experience working with some of the world's top brands and offer it through your keynotes, your online courses, your books. What's the best way to get hold of you? Yeah, sure. So two things. Um, I have a website, gregkilstrom.com. So that has links to all the books and consulting and podcasts and things like that. And then feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Very active there and always happy to engage. Fabulous. We'll put all that information in the show notes. Greg, this has just been insightful and good information. Thanks for being a leader in this and help showing us the way and help companies do this because I think it's necessary. And I think you got a lot of work ahead of you as well. Thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thanks so much. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. Goodbye.